Happy Saturday. It is March 27th, 2021. And thankfully, you are listening to Morning Meeting. Hopefully, you are in bed with a cup of coffee. And we expect that you have already finished your entire edition of Airmail by the time you've picked up this podcast. Welcome to the show, Michael. And happily, I'm here with you, Ashley Baker. Oh, yeah. And this is Michael Haney, though. We just know each other too well at this point, Michael. You're my favorite person to spend Saturday morning with. You and, of course, all of our listeners. We love you guys. We're so grateful that you're here with us. And we've got a lot to talk about this week, Michael. I don't even know where to start. Uh, hmm. Well, let's start with New York City and 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 what Graydon's, Graydon's great advice for the city and how to sort of, as I say, get it cooking again. Ooh, get it. Co- we, we need the city to get cooking again, Michael. Tell us. So Graydon has written our view from here this week, and he's got some pretty provocative and revealing thoughts about the restaurant industry, which is a one that he knows intimately well. Take it away, Michael. It's a great piece about, you know, it's been in the 60s this week in, in New York. You've got vaccine momentum. People are feeling more optimistic. People are back in the streets, hanging out, having dinners and lunches. And uh, as Graydon points out, you know, there's this tendency now to like to do what the city has done for the last hundred years, which is kind of give the streets back over to cars and to sort of maybe take away a lot of these temporary sidewalk spaces that's cropped up over the last six, nine months. But as Graydon reminds, like, let's remember a lot of these restaurants are still not making it. And instead, not only give these guys shot in the arm financially, but also to give the city uh, maybe a little more chance to, in the in the coming months, feel a little more like Paris and uh, and come back to life a little more. So um, and, and keep these at least through the end of the year. Right. Yeah. Graydon, as many of our listeners probably know, is not only an editor par excellence and a second to none writer, but he also is a restaurateur and he's a part owner of the Waverly Inn in the West Village neighborhood of New York City. So he does have some experience in these matters. And not only does he love restaurants, as we all do, but he also knows a little bit about what it's like to run one, or shall we say a lot about what it's like to run one. And he writes, running a restaurant, whether it's a tiny noodle shop in a suburb of Shanghai or a big London brasserie, requires more hats than a MAGA rally. You must be equal parts set decorator, lighting expert, financial manager, stage director, time in motion whiz, HR head, psychiatrist, MC, traffic cop, and motivational speaker. On top of that, you need to know a whole lot about food and wine and people. He, re- <laughs> I would love to read a book, uh, Green's memoir of, of running the Waverly Inn, by the way. I think we've got his next book idea because he, you know, he's been overseeing this now for what? 15 years, Michael, is that right? Has it been that long? I don't even... I think it's been that long. Wow. I think it's been close. It's been close to that long. 15 years of truffle macaroni and cheese. That's what you're telling me? Michael, 15 years is not enough time when it comes to truffle mac and cheese. I need 50 years of truffle mac and cheese. So f- 15 years of truffle macaroni and cheese at $85 a serving. So, is that, what, is that I mean, what it is? Dear God, don't don't make me do math today. It's Saturday. <laughs> okay. No, no math. No math. <laughs> no math. I don't want to know. You know, this is one of those calculations I've never wanted to do. It's like, how much money do I spend on food to enjoy it? And then how much money do I spend trying to lose it when it ends up on my thighs? You know, it again, math. But um, I will say what Graydon delves into, and he's so correct, is that eating out, I mean, to me, there's really no greater pleasure than gathering with friends around a table and having a great conversation. And I'm going to be a little bit 
boastful about our city, Michael, but I think in New York, we do it better than most. And it's just one of the great pleasures of urban life is to, you know, duck into a crowded restaurant. As Graydon has said before, you never really think about a neighborhood in terms of, the oh, I had such a great time buying those shoes. You know, it's the, the real, it's not about going into a store per se. The real fabric of a neighborhood is contingent upon its restaurants. And right now, after the difficult year that they've had, we really owe it not only to our, our local spots, but also to ourselves and to the neighborhoods and the cities that we hold so dear to frequent these restaurants and support them. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people who, when you, when you, when when you live in New York, one of the things you first realize is uh, your apartment is very small. And in order to entertain and see people, it's basically Im- impossible in those first uh, years you're in the city. And so you learn that, you know, what people are, why are there so many restaurants in New York City? Well, because everyone needs a place to go. And as Graydon also points out this week, that as you sort of mentioned as well, I like we've had a year of not spending this money on restaurants. And you know what's going to drive us out of our small apartments? Not just the smallness of apartments and us being tired of them, but all the money that we saved up, hopefully. And we're, now we need to go out and spend it in restaurants. And But, but I think it, just as importantly, it's sort of like what E.B. White pointed out. It's uh, in his essay, This is in New York, which is the the relationships you have with these restaurants in your neighborhood and how they really are an extension of your home and your family and friends. So I think to reconnect with them and rejuvenate them at this time, it's an important thing to do. I feel like one of the things I did the minute I arrived in New York was I discovered my local, right? Like the local restaurant that I went to two or three nights, I mean, two or three nights a week, honestly. And it became such a part of the what was that one? It was Diner in Williamsburg. Did you ever go there? Oh, yeah. Sunday nights with the with the turntables, I was, you know, I was, I was working the wheels of steel that night. <laughs> no, it was so great. I mean, and it was, it was a casual restaurant. You know, they wrote the menu on the paper tablecloth and it changed all the time and it was always seasonal and I was always broke, but I got the same thing every time, which was a cheeseburger, no bun, green salad, and, you know, a bottle of wine with whatever friend I was splitting it with. And it was, I look back on that time in my life and so much of it was centered around those meals at diner. And then what was your first local? Oh, my first local... Uh, well, when I was living in a boarding house, uh, I, which made me my breakfast and dinner, except for Saturday nights, which they didn't make me dinner. I found this little place in the East Village called Paul's Hamburgers, and I'd go there on a Saturday night and have a hamburger. And it was run by this guy named Paul and uh, his sister. And I, you know, in a city of 8 million people, I get, I get teary out thinking about it, but they, they made me feel like I had a family there. And uh, so it, it's, you, you realize so quickly how much those relationships mean. I remember the first, the first restaurant anyone took me to was when I was at Spy and Graydon took me to lunch uh, the first couple months I was there. Put, we got in a taxi cab. We were Union Square. We zoomed down to, I didn't even know what neighborhood I was in. So I later learned it was Tribeca to the Odeon. And I walked in there and I said, oh my God, I thought, remember thinking, one day I want to be a regular here. And I made it this goal and I used to go there then all the time. And uh, there's just such a thrill about being known and having that, as I always call that sort of snug port to pull into every night and and know that everything is is going to be good. That's so cool. I mean, you're just reminding me of all these stories. But, you know, my first date with my husband, we went to Walsay in the West Village because uh, my favorite restaurant at the time was Blauigons, which was Kurt Gutenbrunner, the chef of Walsay. It was his sort of, they used to call it the Bavarian Balthazar. It was in Tribeca and it was this great. Yeah, it was, it was right around from the, right around the street from Odeon. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we went there on our first date and I, you know, I had had some friends that knew Kurt and, 
he, he probably wouldn't even remember this, but he came over, you know, he brought us a bottle of champagne. We closed out the restaurant that night, drinking champagne with Kurt, had the best day. Fast forward 15 years later, I'm still married to the guy. And um, when we had, when we moved, right, when we got our first apartment together, we basically chose our apartment based on its proximity to Blauigons and to Odeon too, in a certain part. But everyone's like, oh, I like your apartment. And we're like, yeah, we're here. It's a great apartment, but we're really here for the schnitzel at Blauigons, you know? It just made me really hungry, actually. I know. Oh, I'm starving too. <laughs> I think we should go to Waverly tonight, honestly. Hopefully we can get a table. Wink, wink. Nudge, nudge. All right. Well, Michael, we could talk about this topic all day long, but instead we have an expert on uh, Chef Ryan Hardy. He is a chef. He is a partner. He is a co-owner of three of the hottest restaurants in New York, Charlie Bird, Pasquale Jones, and Legacy Records. And he is here to talk to us about what is going on in his business. Welcome, Chef. Thank you. Thank you, Ashley, Michael. Thank you for having me on. So Ryan, give us a sense of what's going on first and foremost with your restaurants right now in New York. Well, it's uh, it's been a, a difficult year, I think, for for everyone, not just for restaurants, um, certainly for the purveyors and for the drivers and for, for everybody who's had to suffer through um, this pandemic. Our restaurants are rebounding, I think, as the weather turns, so do diners and you know, so do us all. So I think that's a that's a great sign for where the city is headed. Ryan, your restaurants are so important to their respective neighborhoods. Charlie Bird in Soho slash the West Village and Pasquale Jones in Nolita in Little Italy. Tell us a little bit about what your regulars have said to you, you know, now that you guys have opened your doors again and and just give us a sense of sort of how you guys factor into the fabric of these neighborhoods and what these neighborhoods would be like without restaurants like yours. You know, it's been it's been amazing. I mean, I have to really go back to some of the first days during the pandemic. I think we opened, I think we started working again in May. So I think we opened again the end of May, beginning of June. And it was a relief, I think, for, for a lot of people to, just to just to have something to do. I think so many of us were, were, were terrified, of course, and um, unsure of how we should handle ourselves. And, you know, New York City is, is still New York City. And so, you know, you know, it's kind of funny just taking, I'm sitting up at Squally Jones, so just kind of taking that on. We had to pick up the pizza peel. We didn't have enough employees. We didn't have tables and chairs because we weren't allowed to have those. And we just made things happen. And the neighborhood really turned out. People were so appreciative. They would come to the window, they would order a pizza, and they would literally stand on the street corner. Um, we were able to sell them a bottle of wine. So they would just, we'd uncork the wine, we'd sell it to them, and they would stand over a trash can and, 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 uh, and eat a pizza and drink a bottle of wine together. And although that doesn't, that's not the type of hospitality we strive for, it, it was it was this camaraderie that we saw that we were providing a service um, to a community that was in need, you know, needed a reason to come out of their home, if, if only for a few minutes to come out, eat a meal, see the light of day, and then, and then go back. And I think that um, we built on that slowly over time, not just as a business, but, but that relationship with the community. So, And I love hearing you talk about, as someone who was in the city the entire past year, and I think, you know, just to remind people who didn't live in New York, what that what what that was like, but uh, you're exactly right. I mean, I remember those early days of May, June, when some of the restaurants started to reopen, and you know, you you keep using that word community, which I think is so important because as I as I was telling people who didn't live here, I said once I saw the restaurants back on the street, it was life returning to the street, right? And you could see life coming back to the city, and I think that's that space that restaurants occupy for New Yorkers. It's where it's where life happens, whether it was oftentimes in the restaurant 
trumpet now out on the street and exactly what you say. Yeah, I, I think that's great. And it's, a, and it's a great reminder. I get stuck in my head of being a New Yorker. And so I, I forget <laughs> that's that's it's true. It's where you meet people. Um, it's, it's very rare. I would say in the last 10 years, I can probably count on two hands the number of dinner parties I've been invited to at somebody's home. And I, I think it's, it's just not the kind of thing that New Yorkers do as as much. That's the that's the beauty of New York City. Ryan, you and your colleagues have been working overtime nonstop, really, for the past year. Now it's our turn. Now, now we are reopened to fifty percent in New York. It's time for us to step up. What is what do we as as restaurant lovers and city lovers need to do so that you and your colleagues can survive and thrive in this new world? Thanks for asking that. You know, I, I think everybody's, we all have patience. I think I've seen more kind of outpouring of love, not just towards restaurants, but just towards other New Yorkers in the last year than, than I'd seen in the previous 10. And it's not to say that that New Yorkers don't care. I think that we, in cities in general, you tend to be hardened a little bit by the environment that you live in. So I've just seen a lot more patience, uh, whether it's parking spots or whether it's, uh, you know, walking or whether it's um, just kindness to each other. And you have to be patient. You go out to eat it's hard to, you know, we, we really, uh, we're charging food and beverage minimums for, for a while that, you know, we just ask, look, it's not about, it's not about, we're not, we're not gouging anybody. We just need, if you're going to come in and take a seat, we need to make sure that we can make, you know, $75. <laughs> and that was literally our food and beverage minimum at Pasquale Jones. And I think Charlie Bird was 85 and, and people definitely gave us some pushback on some of those things. And, and when you'd go and explain it to them, uh, it's okay, I get it. You know, I, I want to help out. So I think patience is a, is a, is the first thing. All right, chef, well, we'll be seeing you at your restaurants very soon. Best of luck. Uh, with the reopening of Legacy Records. Can't wait to be back in person there. Hey guys, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. Please say uh, hello to everybody at Airmail and can't wait to uh, to get together and eat some food again soon. Absolutely. Thanks for being here, Chef. See you soon, Chef. Cheers. All right. Talk to you. Bye. Um, Michael, <sighs> on a slightly darker note, did you wow, hear... Okay. That's usually my, it's usually my job, but go ahead. <laughs> Did you read what Bill de Blasio is up to? Do you know what Bill de Blasio is up to? Has this happened in the last six hours? Wait, what? what, what? I'm sorry to say it, Michael. You know, for those of you who like working at home, this period may come to an end. The municipal workers of New York City will be returning to the office starting May 3rd. So I saw this. Remote work is for for eighty thousand municipal office workers is ending, uh, and this is setting out a very clear message that New York is open for business. God, how do you feel about this? I mean, are we we are going back, right? Well, we're you and I are supposed to officially say now that we're being recorded, we love our office and want to go back. But you and I will have an offline conversation. Yeah, I guess we all we. Uh, can I see my attorney <laughs> right now, please? Michael, you need to call your lawyer. No, we. I mean, look, we love our office, and but we don't work in like a normal office in Midtown. You know, like we work in this beautiful townhouse. As I think I talk about every week on the show, it's very civilized and nice. But you know, we also work in these jobs where like conversation and communication is paramount, and the office really facilitates that for us. So I do think for us, it's going to be important that we get back in some capacity. Probably won't be five days a week. You know. But I'll tell you something else that's interesting that, that came across uh, this week. The, the news is, I don't know if you saw this, but Jane Frazier, who's the recently appointed CEO of Citigroup, the big banking company, she announced this week that they're going to bring back all the employees starting very soon. But she said, basically, it's going to be hybrid for the, for the you know, that, that this is all changed and that like this idea that bankers had to be in the office five days a week and always available. And um, so... She's going to kind of loosen that up and she's instituted a couple of things, which is like 
Zoom-free Fridays so that no one has to, whether you're home that day or at the office, have to do Zooms. And a couple, but basically it's this gigantic institution sort of realizing like things are going to be a little different going forward. So maybe there's a world between the two of these, right? I think it's going to take a while for the market to suss itself out. But ultimately, you're going to see the companies that are the most successful are the ones that are able to sort of come up with the right type of flexible arrangements that fulfill everyone's needs. Did you see that story about the Goldman Sachs uh, survey that they took this week. That was a great About town. Michael, some people apparently work 90 hours a week. Who knew? Apparently. But like these guys go into this and then like 10 years later, they're making $90 million a year. So what's the what's the problem? I don't get it. There used to be a trade-off or there exactly. still is a trade-off. It's like you have no life, but you get paid. Right. You have no life, you get paid. And then guess what? You retire at 40. So what is the problem? Yeah. But you know, it's like I always, I have such a skewed perception of like what work is supposed to be like there are things that we don't like about work right oh no i like everything i like, like everything boss boss love it boss everything's great just great just great <laughs> but Keep you know like us. but we read books we write about books we write about culture and we you know these are the things that we do for a living and it, we're not number crunching or working in spreadsheets most of the time and like we have fun with what we do so for us it, it work doesn't have the same sort of negative association because like i consider you know reading a book to be tied to my job right sometimes that's true okay listen you wanted to talk about bad behavior and dark dark things oh god yes not too dark this is not too dark but this story that we've got in this week's issue which is by Nimrod Kamer who taught us a couple weeks ago how to break how to, how to sneak into Mar-a-Lago but people who are probably not going to be returning to the office for a long while are down in Lamu which is an island off the coast of Kenya right this is a crazy story I like I like this story a lot because first of all Lamu came onto our radar because you like people behaving badly always it's so much more interesting than people behaving well are you like Brooke? Because Brooke likes to like narc on these people. But do you like to like find out people behaving badly and then report them? No, I don't. I just like to to hear stories about them because it makes me feel better about my own derelict behavior. <laughs> okay. All right. You probably know about Lamu much more than I mean. I didn't even hear about it till till this till Julia Vital brought this piece in. But tell me, tell tell our 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 well behaved listeners in at home what's what's happening down in Lamu. Well, this is a really beautiful resort area that's a 45 minute flight from Nairobi in Kenya and there's a village called Shella and it's, it's become a hotbed of the art world elite and global quote unquote affluencers who are trying to live their best lives during the pandemic. No one's wearing masks. There's no quarantine required upon entry. There are no hospitals, no COVID treatment centers on the island. The only thing that you have to do to get there is show proof of a negative test and incredibly it's a COVID free zone. Um, it's a gorgeous place. You have beautiful beaches, crystal clear waters, palm trees, all the like. And now, uh, you know, it's filled with these very posh visitors that are swimming and snorkeling and attending art exhibitions and film screenings and even raves. It's kind of like a Xanadu during the pandemic, apparently. Yeah, and apparently, I guess the the, the sort of... Uh center of it all is the hotel called the Paponi Hotel, which is, as uh, Nimrod kind of points out, is is the new Chateau Marmont, but everyone kind of crosses through there at some point. It's where you you know you can go and uh, meet up with other fabulous people and uh, enjoy enjoy your pandemic life, living your best pandemic life there. Yeah, I mean, to me, Michael, look, this isn't like, these guys aren't behaving badly. They're just behaving kind of cluelessly and like ignorance is bliss in the case of what's happening in Lamu right now. So we'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. So speaking of British people and people behaving and, and, and aristocrats and all that, I had one little piece of good news I saw this week. All right. The Crown, the show I love, they've put out a casting call for um, 
to find a young Prince William for the next season. Oh, so tough. Mm-hmm. We need mm-hmm. to we need to get on board with our child actors so we can make some accurate predictions. Uh, it said that they, they put out a casting called uh, hundreds of top schools and drama clubs for a youngster to play the future king. They haven't yet cast Prince Harry, but I guess the new season is going to cover the early 90s, including the Windsor Castle fire, the Annis Horribilis, the end of the Queen's, the marriages of the Queen's three children. I guess the big question mark is whether it goes up to Diana's death in uh, 97, but they're casting for the young Prince William. So there you go. Maybe I know who could, I know who I'd put up for it. Who? Charlie. Oh, God. Your son. Actually, you know what? That's not a terrible idea, except I think William is always. It's not a terrible idea. He actually is more like it. Like, he kind of looks like Harry more, I think, like with the red hair. No, he looks like William. Come on. He's got William's hair and he's so smart and well-spoken. He is a little prince. Come on. He's a little prince. I'm going to submit submit his name. You should do it. I'm sending him in. I got to start making money off this kid, okay? He's costing me a fortune (laughs) in Zoom guitar lessons. I mean, come on. That's a great idea. By the way, while we're on the topic of the royals, did you hear the latest news about Prince Harry and his new gig? I did. He's what is he? He's a, he's a, he's a... he is the chief impact officer at a Silicon Valley startup called Better Up, and it provides coaching and mental health services to clients. And the website has Harry on there as part of the leadership team, and he's described as a humanitarian, military veteran, mental wellness advocate, and environmentalist. So this is like you know three weeks after the, the that bombshell Oprah interview. And he's already got a new gig and he's going to be advising on product strategy decisions, charitable contributions, and and being kind of a public advocate on topics that are related to mental health. Uh, They're not disclosing at this point how much he is getting paid, but the CEO of this company named Alexi Robichaud told the Wall Street Journal, quote, it's a meaningful and meaty role. So more to come. I mean, you're talking about work life earlier. Do you think like Harry has to go on Expensify and like go through his receipts, you know, every month and, oh, wait, I had I had a working lunch at Sweetgreen and I got a file. Like that guy doesn't even know how to do that stuff, right? You know, this this like ultra normal stuff that he's doing now, like perhaps this is, he sees this as the path to happiness. I would agree with you. Well, more to come, Michael. This story, this yes. is the story that just doesn't quit. No, and as I said, I'll read the book when it comes. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you about the, a story that I worked on this week, Michael? Hey, Ashley, can you tell us about a story that you worked on this week? What? Michael, I can't thank you so much. All right, which one do you want to hear about? David Gurman or my new favorite non-alcoholic cocktail? As a non-alcoholic person myself, I'd like to hear about Gia, which is your story this week. All right, well, Michael, you know how sometimes you like in our line of work, you interview, you know, a new entrepreneur, an ingenue, and you think, oh my God, this person really has it together. That is the case with Melanie Mazarin. So she is a branding guru. She started her career working at Goldman Sachs. Uh, she's She grew up in France. She initially moved to the U.S. to attend Brown University. And it was there when she was dealing with stomach pains after subsisting exclusively on American dorm food that she began thinking really hard about nutrition and health and diet. So after she graduated, she started working as an analyst at Goldman Sachs, but then she quit to pursue her dream of working in the restaurant business. So she started off working at Dig In, which is a chain of restaurants around Manhattan. And then she was very successful there and she was recruited by Glossier, uh, the online makeup retailer, and they enlisted her to oversee their expansion into brick and mortar stores. Then she struck out on her own and she started working with clients like Sweetgreen and Dollar Shave Club. And then she came up with this idea for Gia. And I love what she said about this. You know, she did not drink alcohol and she felt like the big alk, as she calls it, the big alcohol industry had been telling us for decades that you 
have to drink in order to be the life of the party. And it was important for her to change that. So she came up with this incredibly tasty product. It has 25 calories. It's branded beautifully. And it, you know, we think of it as sort of like a non-alcoholic Campari, right? Just something that you can enjoy before dinner. And it's very social and fun and it feels special, but it doesn't have 600 calories. And, uh, you know, it's not going to destroy you for the next day. So really brilliant idea, a product that we all like. And it was really fun to talk to her. And it- you know, the other good thing about not drinking, Ashley? You don't wake up racked with terror at two o'clock in the morning every night? Well, that's good too, but you save a lot of money. You know who needs to save some money right now? Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson? Yes. Didn't you read the piece we've got this week by uh, Joseph Bulmore? I did. I guess, you know, politics doesn't really pay, right? At least not if you're doing it properly. Yeah. So you, you've been fascinated by Bojo and his fiance for a while, right? So tell us what she's up to and they're up to and what they're up, up to their eyeballs into this week. Well, have you ever heard the acronym DINK, Michael? Double income, no kids. Exactly. So it turns out that Boris and Carrie are sort of the opposite of that. They're like double income with the gazillion kids. Uh, Joseph Bumble writes about it us in airmail this week. Apparently money is so tight uh, in the Johnson fam uh, because he's got, you know, quite a few kids all over town, probably going to private schools and costing a lot of money and food and shelter and lodging and all of that stuff that, you know, Carrie Simmons got a job and she is, so they are now a dual income family and she is now working as the communications director for the Aspinall Foundation, which is a conservation charity known mostly for two zoos that it runs down in Kent. We probably should have Stu Heritage who lives in Kent on this because I'm sure he's been to these places with his kids, but it's a pretty like cushy organization and it's a, it's helping to sort of foot the bill for the $280,000 refurbishment of Downing Street and the loss, of course, of Boris Johnson's private income. We're going to continue to follow this story because, you know, as we've reported previously in Airmail, there is a lot of gossip going on in London that she is sort of the secret Boris whisperer, you know, that uh, despite appearances, she's much more involved in sort of in his ear about political matters than people had previously thought. The secret Boris whisperer. Now, that's another television show that I would watch. I I thought it was the guy who is Boris Karloff's acting coach. I I don't know. I don't know. Okay. All right. Well, Michael, before we trot off into the weekend and sunset into this marvelous month. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. You know, tell me, Michael, what on earth recommends something to me? Anything. Okay. I have two things for you. One is a book I was reading. I'm I'm dog sitting. Brooke and I are dog sitting this week out in our friend Nate Burkus and Jeremiah Brent's home out east. And, Jealous! Uh, I always love... Jealous! I always love... We're, we're dog sitting Tucker. And what I love is like whenever I come, Nate always has a nice pile of books he's reading. And I stumbled on this one, which I love. Long listed for the man Booker. Long listed for the Booker Prize a few a couple of years ago. It's a book by Kevin Barry called Night Boat to Tangier. And it's about these two Irishmen who are in the waiting room of a ferry term in the sketchy Spanish port of Algeciras. And uh, they're looking for uh, one of the da- the daughters of one of the men, and uh, it's it's so beautifully written. It's 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 poetic, but it's also rendered with this dark humor. And it's it's almost like it's like a f- it would be like if if Samuel Beckett wrote a film noir. And I picked it up the first night and sort of tore halfway through it, and uh, I finished it the other night. So loving that, it's just superbly melancholic, and uh, but with this beautiful poetry in it, and uh, as well as um, hard boiled men. So I love that. My second thing, which I'm going to recommend, and I'm probably the last guy on the planet to see it because number one, 
we don't have the Disney Plus channel, unlike 100 million other people who seem to, right? Have you seen Soul yet, the Pixar movie? No. Yeah, it's okay. I'm not the last guy then. Tell me, what what's it about? I mean, I've heard rumblings, but I haven't seen it. Okay, so it came out back in December. It was supposed to be the big theatrical release for Pixar this year. Obviously, you know, the world had different plans for it. But it is, uh, it's nominated for an Oscar this year as Best Animated Film. And it was co-written and co-directed by a guy named Kemp Powers, who also wrote the screenplay for One Night in Miami, which we also discussed here earlier. But this might be my favorite Pixar movie since Up. Did you see Up? Remember about the little old man and the Boy Scout and anyway, but anyway. No, I didn't see that. Wow, what are you doing? I know, I'm just wasting my life is what I'm doing, Michael. No, you're not. Okay, uh, how do you describe this film? Uh, It's about jazz, it's about longing and limitations, it's about death. It's about New York City. Uh, It's the story, it's basically the story of a jazz pianist who has a near-death experience and he gets stuck in the afterlife. It's voiced by Jamie Foxx and it's so inventive that it's impossible not to love this film. Brooke and I, it came and it ended like an hour and 40 minutes. We both turned each other, sort of choked up and uh, at the beauty of it, but also the inventiveness of it, as I say. And Tina Fey plays the sort of second fiddle in the in the film or voices it. And uh, I just, it's got to be one of my favorite films of the year now. Really, really beautiful. Fantastic. Sign me up. Yeah. Marching orders. Done. Marching orders. And Ashley, what do you got for me? Well, Michael, I am reading a 21-year-old book. A book from 21 years ago, a book for 21-year-olds. Okay, so uh, it was published in 2000, and it was the final novel of a great American author. Great American fiction. Great American novelist. No idea. Saul Bellow, Ravelstein, his final book. Oh. Michael, you're a Chicagoan. You should know this. I am a Chicagoan, as as Saul Bellow said. I'm a Chicagoan. Knock once and I enter. What what prompted you to to write to, to read that? Well, I've I've been a Saul Bellow fan since I you know was able to you know I've been a Saul Bellow fan for a very long time. He's probably one of my favorite writers ever, and I do try to reread a Bellow book every year or so. And so this year I'm reading Ravelstein, and it's one of my favorite ones that he's ever written. It's a slim little thing, and I guess you know you would call it sort of a it's not really a memoir, it's not really a Romana Clef, but anyway, it's it's based upon you know the the protagonist is Abe Ravelstein, who is a professor of philosophy at the University of Chicago. And this is a character based on Alan Bloom. And it tells the story of a friendship between Ravelstein and a writer and the complications uh, of their relationship as they approach Ravelstein's death. So it's a it's a Romana cleft that's written as a memoir. And uh, the narrator is with Ravelstein in Paris, uh, as well as with his lover, Nikki. And Ravelstein is dying. And you know he asks this narrator to write about him uh, after he dies. And not to get too bogged down in details, but it's a really beautiful meditation on life and the ending of life. And sad and hopeful and joyful and full of the intimacy of experience all at the same time. So it's one of my, if, if you're not a Bellow fan or if you've never read Bellow, this is a really good place to start. Yeah, see, I mean, so it sounds like it intersects with with Soul, the movie I just watched, but in a very different way. But yeah, we're on the same, Michael. As always, we're on the same wavelength. Yeah, but yeah, Saul Bellow. I am an American, Chicago born, Chicago, that somber city. That was his line from um, Humboldt's Gift. Oh, Augie March. Augie March. Yeah, The Adventures of The Adventures of Augie March. Henderson, The Rain King, another perfect book. Uh, Some would say Humboldt's Gift is his finest work. I don't know. I'm not. We're not going to get into that today. That's a topic for another day. But we do love Bellow. I mean, I've been reading. I've been reading a lot of new stuff. Did I? I already talked about Dana Joya's studying with Miss Bishop, right? Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. God, there's hurts. Mr. Sandler's Planet. What what does Saul Bellow and Bob Dylan have in common? Jeez, they both won the Nobel Prize. Oh yeah, 
I always forget that about Bob Dylan. I don't know how. It's such an important fact. I know. There you go. But I've taken my son to see Bob Dylan twice. I took him when he was five and what? I took him again when he was six. Yeah, I took him to see Bob Dylan at the Beacon Theater in New York. Bob usually plays like a six or seven night engagement there. Usually it's like right after Thanksgiving. It's like that, you know. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, whatever, after Thanksgiving. And it was a fortune and he was young and it was late and it was kind of a headache to do with the whole thing. But I had this weird feeling when I did it, like, you know, who knows how long Bob Dylan is going to be around. I still don't forgive myself for missing Leonard Cohen's uh, show at Barclays. Do you remember that in 2013? Mm -hmm. Did you go to that? Mm -hmm. I did not. Oh. I say I regret it too. I regret it. I mean, I was going to go. It was the weekend of my baby shower when Charlie was born. All my family was in town. I was like, just going to buy tickets on StubHub and, and do it because I wanted to go so badly. And then it didn't work out because we had all these other things going on. And I was like, well, I'll see him again. I'll see him again. Well, of course, I never saw him again. And I regret it forever. So now whenever Dylan's in town, I go and I take my son. And guess what? When am I going to see him again? I don't know. Thank you, COVID. So I'm really glad that I did it. And it's, it's just another good reminder to like carpe diem. Got to do this stuff. Exactly. Anyway, well, Michael, on that note. On that note, on the carpe diem note, carpe diem, everyone. It's Saturday, right? Yeah, go carpe your Saturday. Thank you for joining us as always. And Michael, please read us out. Morning Meeting is produced by Airplay Productions and edited by Jesse Cannon. Our co-editors are Graydon Carter and Alexander Stanley. Our chief operating officer is Bill Keenan, and our deputy editors are Nathan King and Chris Garrett. Our CMO is Emily Davis, and our music supervisor is Randall Poster. Our theme music is The Cute Monster by the Buddy Collect Quintet. A new edition of Airmail is published every Saturday, so please do subscribe and enjoy all of our stories on airmail.news, which we update every day. You can also find us on Twitter and Instagram at Airmail Weekly. We will be back here on Saturday with another edition of Morning Meeting. In the meantime... Be sure and subscribe to the show on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts. Most of all, thank you for joining us.